Good morning. Yes. Let me say thank you to, uh, do we have both of these on? I can't tell. One of them's hot. I want to say thank you to everyone who put that uh, video together, to Rose, to Jeanette, to Ralph, and Alan Reed, who uh, Alan and Chooks put together the graphics there. Um, If you haven't seen those yet on our podcast, our weekly pod uh, videos for our sermons, um, that's all homegrown talent. So we just want to say thank you to the Lord for the gifts that he's given us. And our greatest resource is always people. If you have your Bibles, turning them to 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. We're continuing our study on the topic of stewardship. And we want to remember that stewardship refers to a person who cares for the possessions of another. This morning we're going to talk specifically about how we are to steward our time. You know, time is really the enemy for a fallen world. We are all on a collision course with death. We are all on a collision course with the end of resources. And time works against us. James said that your life, he asked the question, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We ought to say that if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. He's speaking about persons who make plans for the future and whose plans are really purposeless. The person who plans in this particular passage, their plan is to go to such and such a city and to make money. They don't even have a plan. Not only do they not have a plan, but... Their goal or their desire is really for money. It's really greed. And James warns us to steward our time better than a purposeless plan or a sinful desire. He says this, he says, As it is, you boast in arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. To waste our time is sinful. As I studied 1 Thessalonians, or 2nd, I said 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15 this past week, I kept saying to myself, it can't be possible that Paul is this strong, this hard on people who waste their time. Could it be possible that God's apostle is this strict on people who waste their time? And I was completely challenged this week. Let's look at our passage, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-15. through Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But the toil and labor we worked day and night, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, 
but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we seek to understand your word, make it clear how the message 2,000 years ago applies to us today. Lord, we share with our brothers and sisters the same Holy Spirit that they had 2,000 years ago. Unfortunately, though, Lord, we also know that we share the same sinful nature. There's nothing new under the sun, Lord. We still struggle with sin, and we still struggle with wasting of time. And Lord, the biggest thing that we fail to do is to steward the gifts that You've given us. Many of us, Lord God, are not committing sins in a in a commissive way, Lord God, we are omitting what you have told us to do. And you have commanded us to be stewards of our time and of our talents and of our treasures. And it is my prayer this morning, Lord, that your word would speak to each and every one here and that your word would change and transform our lives so that we might put our hands to something useful. Lord, as we heard our brothers and sisters say, something for the kingdom. Lord, challenge us by your word, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's one main theme that runs through verses 5 through 15 or 6 through 15, and that, that is this. The gospel compels us to steward our time in such a way that we are a blessing to the church rather than a burden. The goal of this sermon today is to convince you of that truth, that the gospel compels us to steward, that is to use the time that does not belong to us in such a way that we are a blessing to the church and to the kingdom of God rather than a burden to it. I want to take the first part of our sermon and I want to unpack just what is going on in this particular passage. The first thing that we have to answer in our passage is what is the occasion that led Paul to give this command? God is not up there in heaven thinking how he can destroy our fun. And so he gives a little command here and a little command there and a little command there so that he just puts all of these rules around to keep us from having fun. Our children think that that's what Stephanie and I do at night. That when they go to bed, we go in our room and we list all of the things that they're not allowed to do so that we can destroy their fun. And, and really, that's, that's what happens a lot of times when we're immature in our faith. That we think that God has commanded things so as to destroy our fun. That He is the great cosmic killjoy of the universe. 
But God doesn't give commands in a vacuum. That is, he doesn't give commands for no reason. He gives commands for a very important reason always. And the first thing that we want to answer is what is the occasion in this particular passage that led Paul to be so severe in his command to not associate with idle persons? Churches tend to manifest particular sins. This has been historically true and it's true today. Pride and carnality plagued the church at Corinth. The Galatian churches were in danger of abandoning the gospel. That means they wouldn't be a church anymore. They would be something other than a church, but not a church of Jesus Christ. In the seven churches of Asia Minor, five of them were guilty of their own particular sin. Ephesus had forgotten their first love. Pergamum and Thyatira were guilty of tolerating cults and heresies and idolatry and even sexual immorality. In Sardis, the church was dead in their faith. They had no more energy for God. The church was completely absent of love for the gospel. In Laodicea, they were neither hot nor cold, but they relied on their riches rather than on Christ. They hadn't committed one way or the other. No one knew what to think about them. And in Thessalonica, a small, or well, actually a pretty big city on a port, uh, in Macedonia, in the northern part of Greece, in Thessalonica, there was a small community of Christians, and their particular sin was the sin of idleness. When we look at the word idle in English, we tend to think that the word means lazy, a lazy person. What was so interesting this week is that while I did my study of the word idle, I found that the lazy person or that the idle person is actually very, very busy. It's a busy person. So when you read this passage, I don't want you to think of someone who's lazy. I want you to think of somebody who is very, very busy. In fact, Paul calls them busy bodies but they are busy at wasting their lives. They are busy at wasting time. And not only are they busy at wasting time, they are busy at wasting the time of others. In his first letter, Paul commanded the church to admonish the idol. This problem has been there for some time and to aspire to live quietly and to mind their own affairs and to work with their hands as Paul instructed them so that they may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The tendency of this community was to have a group of moochers. You know what a moocher is? <clears throat> Parents, that teenager that lives in your house? He or she is a moocher. They take, 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 and give nothing. You go into their room, dirty. You go into the kitchen, dirty dishes. And they don't clean, and they don't take care of their stuff, and they just come and they walk into your room and they say, Mom, can I get 20 bucks? Mom, you see Madden 18 came out? I really want to get Madden 18. That's fine when it's teenagers. 
And you want to you discipline those teenagers to mature into mature adults and to see that they have responsibilities that they have to care for. But when it is adults, and when it is Christians who are supposed to be mature, this is a real, real problem. Paul derided the Thessalonians for their idleness, claiming that the idle weren't busy at work, but they were busy bodies. The word that the ESV translates as idle is the Greek word ataktos, and is refers to someone who is disorderly. The word is actually two words. It's the, the first letter is a, which means it's a negative, it negates, and tasso. And the word tasso means order. So someone who was ataktos was someone who was disorderly in their life. That is that they're not, it's not that they're lazy, it's just that they're busy doing the wrong things. So in English, however, we think that this means lazy, but that's not exactly the meaning. In fact, when Paul says that they were busy, not that they were busy at work, but that they were busy bodies, he actually describes the person as working around work. That's how the word, it's a play on words there. In other words, the idle work the idle work at meddling in the affairs of others rather than working hard for themselves and for the church. Paul commanded the idle to work quietly, assuming that their tongues were busier than their hands. The idle person is someone who wastes his time or her time leading to wasted resources. Paul says if he does not work, he should not eat. And the implication is that those who don't contribute to the community should not receive the benefits since they are nothing but a burden. But idleness does not usually receive the attention in our churches as do the other sins of the Bible. However, the sin here is as much an issue of quality as it is an issue of quantity. It is both a type of sin, a particularly bad sort of sin, and it's been going on for some time. The sin of idleness is not merely lack of uh, contribution, but a deliberate disobedience to the commands of Christ to steward His church. We, We tend to think in our churches that sins are only a commission, that it's only what we commit. But in this particular uh, passage, Paul is addressing a type of sin called a sin of omission. It's what we fail to do. And most of us, as we mature in the Christian life, we're going to find that our lives are less an issue of committing sin and more an issue of not obeying. It's more an issue of not being active in pursuing the kingdom of God. Most of us don't struggle with with sexual sins. I'm, I'm I'm sure that there are plenty of us who do struggle with that or who have been delivered from that. We struggle with the sin of 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 drunkenness or or drug use. Most of us are just apathetic towards serving God and being proactive for him. Our sins are usually when we don't share the gospel with the lost person when we don't give of our time and our talents and our treasures in a focused and intentional way to glorify God, that's where most of us find ourselves. And so 
Paul sees this as a real problem because not just because they are, they, they are failing to do something, but because they've been doing it for quite some time and haven't corrected the problem. Furthermore, this sin has gone on long enough that Paul has had to address the issue in his first letter, and now almost a, a year later, the idol were still living in disobedience. And idleness and criticism, however, they tend to go hand in hand in the church. These people who weren't busy at work were busy bodies. And it seems that the person always who contributes the least usually complains the most. You know that in life, but it's also a principle that happens in our churches. It's a reality that the people who contribute the least complain the most. It's exactly what you would expect. They have no skin in the game and so their only thing that they're able to do is sit out on the outside and criticize everything that everyone else do, does because they wouldn't do it that way. Of course, they fail to realize as a critic that they're not doing anything anyway except for criticizing. The person who walks in idleness refuses to submit to a church's leadership. Again, that's what the word means, ataktos. They are disorderly. In fact, tasso has a military meaning to it. It means someone has come and given the battalion a command from a leader, and the people who are ataktos are those who say, no, I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. I heard what you said, Paul through the authority of Jesus Christ, and no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And That's the attitude, that's the heart that leads Paul to be so strict on what he expects his people to do. The heart is not simply saying, I'm too tired. It's saying, I don't want to obey. I don't want to obey my leader. You take that attitude into a war, and you're going to get yourself killed. My brother used to say to me, Andrew, yours is not to reason why, yours is but to do or die. Now plug this neon light into this wall that I've constructed and don't ask any questions. That is a literal story and it shot me halfway across the room. But I was faithful steward to my brother. They, that is the idol, are... They are a, a, like a, a nagging hangnail. They're dangling on by a thread all the while irritating the whole body. This is why Paul called them busy bodies. Their time was spent in useless meddling rather than in useful work. The sad reality is that this sin is often tolerated in many of our churches today. Proverbs 6.19 says that the Lord hates he hates when his people so discord among the brethren that such an act is an abomination. So they're not busy at contributing, but they're busy bodies. They're busy at criticizing. They're bitter at sowing discord. They're, they're busy telling everybody that, they should, that the sermon should have been preached this way or that the music should have been presented this way or that the money should be spent this way rather than actually giving their time, talents, and treasures. Paul says they're busy bodies. And Proverbs 6.19 says, God hates this. The person who doesn't work, but who sows discord. 
The idle are active in spreading leaven all the while eating up the bread. Churches have to take this sin more seriously as this passage commands. Swiftly rebuking this sin of idleness wherever it crops up. My friend Louis Acosta always says, remember this, Pastor, you have what you tolerate. You have what you tolerate. And that's true of every church. Church, listen to me. We will have what we tolerate. If we have critics in this church and you tolerate it, you have that because you permit it to go on. If we don't have the financial resources to be a better ministry that goes into the the neighborhoods and is is able to use the, the gifts that it has to bring more glory to the kingdom, if we don't have that, you are responsible for it. You have what you tolerate. The church that permits a person to criticize rather than contribute is like a snake eating its own tail. Not only is the whole meal bitter, but the body dies in the process. This is a very serious issue, and idleness must be rebuked in the church. Now, Paul goes on to say, now, so this is the sin, and he says, here's my right. Here's how we're going, to, we're going to eradicate this. He is going to invoke authority. So this is the sin. Here's the authority to say, don't do this thing. So Paul invokes at the beginning the name of the Lord Jesus Christ so that the Thessalonians will know that this is not a suggestion of advice, but rather a serious command that is to be obeyed. Paul is not saying, you know, it's better when you serve. He is saying, you better serve. This is not advice. It is a command from God. Calvin claimed that this commandment ought to be received with reverence, not as from a mortal man, that is Paul, but as from Christ himself. That alone, of course, should be enough for a Christian. You know, you would think that you take the Bible, you open it up, and you say, look, this is what the Bible says. And Christians would go, oh, okay. Well, the matter's settled. <laughs> I'll give my time, talents, and treasure. But that's not what happens, though. Because of our immaturity. That should be enough. When God says, go and do, that should be enough. And Paul says, I invoke you in the the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I command you. He says, I I command. So he's commanding two people. He's commanding two groups. The obedient to abstain and to keep away from the disobedient. And later on, he's going to claim that the disobedient, that that they be obedient, that they conform to the way or the standard or imitate what Paul has set down, that they obey what God has told them. But because this command is not enough, Paul goes in to explain what he did when he was among them. He reminds them that he worked both night and day so as not to burden the church. His work was in spite of his right as an apostle to collect contribution for his laboring in preaching and teaching. Every laborer of preaching and teaching has the right in Scripture to receive contribution from the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.9, do not muzzle the ox while he is treading grain. 
The imagery here is of an ox who's doing his work, and the thing that he gets is that he gets to eat grain while he's working. And he says, it would be unfair for a church to take its leaders and muzzle them while they're working. In other words, they don't get any kind of compensation. And so Paul says in this passage, he says, I did not take that right. I had a right to receive from the church money so that you would follow my example and imitate me. He says, my goal was to not burden any of you. His reason was that he might set a clear example of stewardship for the rest of the church to follow. And the example that Paul has set has an obvious moral behind it. Namely, steward your time and efforts in such a way that you are a blessing to the church rather than a burden. Paul says, be a blessing to the people rather than a burden. As such, Paul's authority is both derived and it is deserved. He carries the authority of Christ because he has been appointed as an apostle. And yet, the new converts of Christianity in Thessalonica need proof that he was not some person who was there to simply get rich off of them. And so Paul worked as a tent maker night and day in order to provide his way and did not receive the right that he as an apostle was privy to. So Paul says, listen, here's your sin. I set the opposite example, and the imagery is, Paul is saying, listen, I'm going in a different direction than you are. In other words, I'm working my best to be a blessing. You're working your hardest to be a burden. And he gives you this juxtaposition. So he gives a command. The whole section begins with Paul commanding the entire church to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. In fact, it's the second person plural in the Greek that he uses, and the word is steleste, and it means to keep away from them in such a way that you are aloof, that is, you are not to be friendly with the person but to keep your distance with the brother who lives in sin. So Paul commands the obedient and the good steward of their time to not be friendly with the person, to not be in fellowship, in warm, cordial fellowship with the person who wastes their time and saps the church of its resources without contributing. At the end of the passage, Paul further specifies that the faithful are not to have anything to do with them. The word there is sunamignuste, and it means literally that the obedient are not to mix and mingle with idle persons. They're not to be at the, they're not to be at the pot dinner and we walk up and smack them on the back. Hey, Bobby, how you doing, Bobby, while you're, while you're doing nothing? That the idea of the person who's living in sin is to be repulsive to the church. And listen, because the verb, the action that Paul wants to see happen is in the second person plural, it actually means you all, not the pastors. In other words, he's saying it should rub you the wrong way. 
that there are people in the body who would be a burden and their life would work to be a burden rather than a blessing. And it should bother you. Don't associate with them. Don't be okay with it. The, the only illustration I could think of that was similar to what I think Paul was driving at was when I do something bad at home and my wife doesn't kick me out of the house, she doesn't break our relationship off, but the fellowship's not right. And you, you try to play around with her and you walk over to the sink and you give her a little kiss on the cheek and it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. You know uh, you haven't apologized for that issue, right? Now, she's not passive-aggressive, not always, um, but she's not passive-aggressive. But she tells me, we got to get this thing right. Hey, we're not right right now. We've got to work on it. We need to sit down and talk. Andrew, you need to, you have to, you have to do X, Y, or Z. And sometimes that goes the other way, where I have to sit down and do the same thing with Steph. I mean, she's almost perfect. She's so close to perfect. Some of you are like, oh, you're going to be in trouble for that. She's going to be aloof. What's the Greek word for that? It is steleste, steleste, if you want to know. Stephanie, steleste. There's not mingling. And so the imagery here is that Paul says, don't, don't, don't act like everything's okay. But... But don't sever your fellowship or your relationship, sever the fellowship, okay? Sever the fellowship. He says at the end, he says, you are to not mingle with the person, but do not treat them like an enemy. In other words, as wishing to harm or hurt them. Don't, don't set out to hurt this person who's idle, but treat them like a brother instead. And Paul follows his own advice in the verse 12 where he addresses the busybodies with both a command and an encouragement to do what they know they ought to do. What Paul wants is for the Thessalonians to suspend all cordial fellowship with the intention of devoting time to reconciling the one back to the holy living that God expects from his people. Stott, John Stott, interprets the thrust of Paul's words to mean something like this. Let there be no intimate fellowship with him, that is, those who walk in idleness. Paul's hope is that this will produce godly shame in their hearts. He says, let them be ashamed, which will lead to repentance in turn, which leads to greater holiness. The best example of Paul doing this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8-10. through 10. He says, for even if I made you, he's talking to the Corinthians about a letter that we don't have today, an extent letter. Paul says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Paul says, listen, he's not contradicting himself. He says, I regret that I had to do it. Parents don't get excited when they have to discipline their children. At least they shouldn't. In fact, I, I want to encourage all parents, disciplining your child should hurt you. It needs to take something out of you so that you do it right. It is not a joy to discipline your children. So many times, though, we react when we're angry and we just react and it, we get our 
We get our own pleasure of, of just re- responding with a spank on the butt or something like that. Or taking something away and throwing their toy out the window. I've never done that before. Um, and we don't discipline them carefully. Paul says, listen, I, I, I was grieved, but only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. I don't get a rise out of seeing you suffer. I get a, I'm, I'm joyous that I see you have repented. That means you have stopped what you were doing, and now you're obeying. And I rejoice in that. And that is always the goal that we are to have in our spiritual discipline and in our church discipline. That we live in such a way, that we discipline in such a way that the behavior is corrected and the person is put back in fellowship with the body. Stott tells us that verses 14 and 15 of our passage contain one of the most important teachings in the New Testament on the function and purpose of church discipline. He identifies five principles of church discipline taught in this passage. He first says that, number one, the need for public discipline is not based on trivial matters, but on public and continuous disobedience to the Word of God. In other words, the the, the brother or sister who said something impassive or didn't do something in passing, and it's really not a big deal, and it's over with, and they're not continuing continuously doing it, he says, look, get over it, Okay? Move on if it's trivial. This is a perpetual attitude of not contributing to God's church. Wasting time. And Paul says, you've got to address this. Number two, Stott says, the type of church discipline is a measure of social ostracism. That is, it's not passive aggression, but intentional sternness and openness about a person's need to repent. We have to be stern, but we also have to be open. We have to be vocal with what we are seeing people do. Number three, the responsibility of church discipline belongs to the congregation as a whole. That is, that you all are to be zealous for purity, and should be the first to identify the unrepentant person and confront him. That's what Jesus has in mind in Matthew chapter 8, uh, 18, verses 15 through 20, when he says, if your brother has sinned against you, go to him in private. You don't need to stand up and say, Bob doesn't tithe to everyone. First, go to Bob if you know that Bob doesn't tithe. If Bob said to you in passing, No, I don't give to that church. I don't give my money to that church. I just go. I take, take, take and never give. You say, Bob, can I talk to you about something? Hey, Bob, let's go to coffee. Let's go get coffee together. Hey, Bob, you said something the other day that that troubled me. Bob, you said that you don't give to the church. You you said that that you don't contribute to the church. I I just want to ask you, Bob, is that consistent with the Word of God? Bob, you and I both have to live according to the Scriptures, and we don't like everything that's in there, Bob, but it is the Word of God, and we are to follow it because we are Christ's disciples. And hopefully at that point, Bob says to you, man, you know, I, I haven't thought about it like that. And that there's conviction And Bob repents. 
And we're not there to point our, our fingers in the faces of Bob and say, hey, Bob, you don't give. You're bad. It's to say, Bob, you're not serving the way Christ expects you to serve. Bob, you're, you're, you're living in sin, Bob. I want you to repent. I'm pleading with you. No, we're not going to do the game tonight. Bob, you're, you're not obeying Christ's command. And it hurts me that you don't care about this, Bob. Paul says, this is what we're supposed to do. Jesus says, first go to him. If Bob were to say to you at that point, I don't care what you have to say. I don't care what you have to say, I'm not given. There is no New Testament principle of tithe. Then you call three or four people that Bob knows and loves, and you, you meet with Bob again. Hey, Bob, you're wrong, and I just want to share with this with you. There's three or four people who can help me, and we all agree, and we can all explain to you, Bob, Bob, you are living outside of Scripture. And three or four, and the whole church still doesn't know, and Bob now sees, and hopefully Bob says, wow, now the whole, it's not just that one person thinks this. It's not the opinion of the pastor. It's the opinion of the community. They all agree with this. They're not in disharmony. They're in harmony. And hopefully Bob repents there. But maybe Bob says, no, you're all wrong. And, they and he disagrees with the entire community of the church. And now Paul sa uh, Jesus says, now you've got to bring it before the church. Church, our brother Bob does not agree like how we agree. He is living in perpetual sin. And hopefully, the whole church begins not to shame Bob, not to hurt Bob, but to say, Bob, no, this isn't the way. Let's do it. This is the way, Bob. And hopefully, Bob sees the love and the compassion, and Bob responds to it, and he repents. And Jesus says, if he doesn't repent there, then you have to excommunicate Bob from the fellowship because leaven will leaven the whole lump because Bob will become a busy body. Because Bob will now come in and sow discord. Because now Bob will be that little drip of arsenic in your, in your water that spreads throughout the whole glass. And it affects you and you and you and you and everyone. Because these commands are not made in a vacuum. Jesus is not unreasonable. Do you know what happens in the real world when your boss finds out that you're not a team player? You are fired. Fired. And that's of temporal significance. This is of eternal significance, and we don't care. The purity of God's bride. And we say, Jesus says, you cannot let, and Paul's saying the same thing, you cannot let sin go unpunished. The spirit of church discipline is to be friendly, says Stott. Don't misunderstand the notion as pleasant, but it is to be viewed as caring concern for a fellow brother. Like a loved one who's addicted and you have to intervene to get this brother on the right track. And ultimately, the goal is to produce godly repentance, as Paul noted in 2 Corinthians. But church discipline is one of those topics in the Bible that Americans have chosen to overlook. There are some reasons for this. 
The first reason is that there is a general leeriness against church discipline because of legalistic abuses in the past. Legalism is when a person makes something a law that God's word does not make a law. Like dancing is a sin. Like going to movies is a sin. Like drinking alcohol is a sin. Nude dancing is a sin. Pornography is a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. But dancing? It's a sin when I do it. I get so nervous when you guys start clapping. I am so, I, don't, I have two left feet, I can't clap. And, when, and, when, and you know, you guys are from the Caribbean, so you guys know how to clap and you're doing everything. And I'm just sitting here and like, oh my gosh, they can all see me. And I don't want to clap, I want to keep it right here, keep it real safe. Stephanie's nudging me, come on, come on, come on. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Just, just leave it alone. I'm not, let, me, let me look at my sermon. I'm doing something very important here. I don't want you to see me because I can't do it. I mean, I... It's a sin when I dance. Some white guy who couldn't dance came up with that idea that dancing was a sin. Um, I might need to do an exegesis on that. Um, so we don't take things that aren't sin and say that's sin when it's not sin. Right? We don't do that. And, and there is a reason why people say, oh, church discipline. No, I, I remember in this one church, they kicked the person out because the woman wore pants on a Sunday. Hey, listen to me. That's not a sin. Scripture nowhere commands that women are to not wear pants. Okay? Number two, uh, there's a general confusion in our culture as a whole as to what exactly discipline is. Discipline is debated from the top to the bottom. How should we punish criminals? How should we punish our children? No consensus exists on how to discipline. Third, there's a general allergy to discipline and correction in our society. R.C. Sproul notes that the subtle change in meaning in the phrase, you can't legislate morality, from its original meaning, which was descriptive rather than prescriptive. In other words, you can't legislate morality when it was first said meant it's not possible to do it. Once you legislate it, like in alcohol prohibition, when they said don't drink, when they, when they made alcohol consumption illegal, everybody drank more. Hence the Kennedys. I mean, this is how, how do you think these people made their money? You can't legislate morality. It was a description. It was just a, a general truth. Today, we take it as a prescription, as what we should not do. Oh, you shouldn't say abortion's wrong. You don't have a right to say that. Oh, you shouldn't say that for types of, of sexual immorality is wrong. You don't have the business to do that. Everybody has their right to do whatever they want. Now, that runs aground eventually, doesn't it? That is not an absolute principle, yet it is paraded around like an absolute principle. Everyone is not entitled to do what they want to do. You are not entitled to drive 95 miles an hour on a 70-mile-an-hour highway. You are not permitted to have sex with whoever you want to. Why do we think that, why are we surprised when we see all these Title IX lawsuits in these colleges? Because boys and girls hear that they're allowed to have sex with whoever they want to, and when that football player sees that girl and he wants to, and she doesn't, and he goes and pursues it, why are we shocked? He's been told he's entitled to it. We have a general leeriness 
about morality. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is saying, listen to me. You do it according to the word, and you do it according to the right spirit. Church, we have to care about those who don't steward their time. We have to care when our brothers and sisters have fallen into sin. When we don't, and when these things go unaddressed in our churches, they leaven the whole lump. That is, that they put a toxifying agent into the entire church. Well, how does this apply to us? There are several things that we can learn from this passage. Number one, the first thing that this passage teaches us is that we are to waste not our time. The first thing we see in our passage this morning is that time-wasting is no laughing matter. It wasn't to Christ who said, when I come back as a steward, and I, or I come back as the owner, and I see, when I come back to see what you've done with the possessions, what will I find you doing? And he says, if you wasted your time, I will treat you like I would one of the hypocrites. Casting you into the flames where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Holy cow, when I read that. He says, it is not, Christian, that you only sit down and say, well, I didn't murder anybody today. Jesus must really be proud. It's not every single negative command of the Ten Commandments has a positive command. Have no other gods before me. In other words, make God your ultimate. Have no graven images. In other words, worship God correctly the way he tells you to in Scripture. Don't take his name in vain. Speak good for God. See that name as a name that is glorious and beautiful and share it with others. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That is be excited about worshiping God once a week. Take a day and worship God. Not only do you, five, is an honor your mother and father, that your days in the land might be long. Yes, your parents might think you should be a doctor and you want to be a painter, but honor them in your painting. Don't wrestle with your parents the rest of your life. Come to an agreement. Love them, show grace. It's not just don't murder, it's love your neighbor. It's not just don't commit adultery, it's be faithful with your sexuality. It's not just don't steal, it's give away. It's not just don't commit adultery, or sorry, uh, don't, don't, uh, what's number nine? Thank you. It's not just don't lie. Some of you say, oh gosh, he doesn't know it. It's tell the truth. It's speak the truth in love, as the New Testament tells us. And number 10, it's not to covet things in other people's possessions, treating them as a means to an end, but it is to love them as someone who images the glory of God. Every command has a positive sense. This is not just don't waste your time. It is stewarded. It is use your time to be a blessing to the church rather than a burden. Proverbs says, go to the ant 
Oh, sluggard, that's a waster of energy. Consider her ways and be wise without having any chief, officer, or ruler. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. In other words, she doesn't wait till the pastor tells her to do something. She just does it. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The greatest example that's been set for us of someone who stewards their time was God who created the world in six days. In fact, when... We are told to keep the Sabbath. It is upon the example set by God who created and worked. This past two weeks ago, you got to see the glory of God. This beautiful thing happened. It just so happens that our moon is 400 times smaller than the sun, and it just so happens to be 400 times further away from the sun so that we can see a perfect solar eclipse in certain places. It was the glory of God. It was a beautiful thing. He put the finishing touches on our creation. Our creation's not just utilitarian, that is useful. It's beautiful. We get to enjoy it. We get to sit there. Oh my gosh, look at that three minutes. A moon. Pass in front of a sun. We shut down our schools. It's amazing because God was like, you're going to love what I'm about to do. You see those little things that twinkle in the sky? They're little specks, and they're, they're just little specks to you. Okay? And far, far, far away, they are giant balls of gas. If you got, if you got close to them, they would destroy you. But I'm going to put them up there that you might see how beautiful they are, that you might enjoy it, that you might tell your wife that her eyes are like the stars in the sky. You're going to be poetic about my nature. You're going to love it. God is a great creator. We are to imitate it by being a blessing with our time, by working to contribute we are number two to warn the idol. This is a discipline and it's awkward, but we dare not neglect it. The person who fails to steward his or her time cannot be permitted to go unnoticed by the congregation. This is what Paul means when he says, note that person. The verb there is in the second person plural, meaning you all must personally take note of the person who does not contribute their time. He does not leave the warning up to the church elders, but expects the community to do this. How would we do this? How would you even begin to do this? First, you have to earn the right to warn. Paul did not command the church to do something that he himself was not already doing. The unfortunate thing is that the idle person won't get this point. He or she is a busybody, meddling in the affairs of the church rather than working to contribute to it. Second, you have to become more vocal. Paul's not calling us to be passive-aggressive, leaving the person to wonder what they did wrong. He expects us to verbalize the person's sin firmly, yet gently, so that the person will not note their wrongdoing and correct it. Third, you are to be intentional. This does not mean that you become a sin sniffer, but it does mean that you take note of obvious sins in the church, and in doing so, the goal is not to gossip about that person, for that too is a sin, Neither is it to criticize, for that is also a sin. 
Instead, the goal is to move the individual members of the church to view themselves as stewards who intentionally seek the greater purity of the congregation. You have, you have to earn it. You have to vocalize it. And you have to lovingly go intentionally, lovingly guide people into right living. Finally, you are to work to be a blessing, not a burden. This morning when we watched that video of people, they, they weren't bragging. I promise you, they were all reluctant to do it. Every last one of them, when I asked them to come and just do the video and just share, when they were asked, they were all reluctant. They didn't want to say, hey, look at me. They were nervous. Jeanette told me as she put my microphone on, she says, I was dying. I did not want to do that. I was so nervous. She said, but you know, I, I did it because you asked me to do it. I'm glad that you all love Turn Your Radio On. You will not hear me bumping that song in my van as I'm driving down the street. My, my systematic theology professors got an uneasy stomach when I sang that song this morning. I am not sure how theologically sound it is, but I am glad that you love it. I felt years ago that the Lord had called me out of the singing music ministry and into the preaching ministry. But I do it because you love it. We serve because we, we want to care for our brothers and sisters. We want to be a blessing. We want to take our time to be a blessing, not a burden. Church, are you stewarding your time to be a blessing or to be a burden? Do you criticize or do you contribute? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ compel you to be a blessing to your church? Listen to what Paul said. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, care for others, contribute for others, live the other-directed life, live for God, live for others. He says, this is what Christ did for you. Who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. God becomes a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. That is, the creator has now become the creation. What a nasty thing that the creator would be now the creation. That he would be confined to the limitations of the flesh. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That the judge of the world would stand and be judged by his own creation. And be found guilty. 
is a great example of why we have to care and steward our time. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Not just because he's God, but because he set for us an example to imitate. To give of ourselves to others. To serve God and others. Christ is our greatest example of stewardship that the Bible knows. Rather than grasping on to his right as the King of kings and Lord of lords, Christ emptied himself to serve the church sacrificially. His love for the church culminated in his own death on the cross. The gospel, therefore, compels us to steward our time in such a way that we are a blessing to the church rather than a burden. The gospel does not call us to die for the church. It calls us to live for her. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you sent your own son, Jesus that you would empty yourself, that you would leave the throne that is so rightfully yours and you would humble yourself to serve the church, to die for it through you, through your death, we have eternal life. You are our master, you are our Lord, and Lord, our churches in America do not emulate your stewardship. You didn't call us to die for the church that was your right, Jesus. That was your role, Jesus, to die for the church. You've called us to live for the church. You've called us to give of our time and our talents and our resources to what you love so much that you died for. Holy Spirit, compel us to be a blessing to our churches rather than a burden. Amen.